Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Ever meet somebody and just like them right away? Um, I feel that way about all my guests, but I really feel that way about uh, Manoush Zamarodi, who is my guest this week. In fact, we're doing a swap. I'm on her podcast. She's on mine. Her podcast is called Note to Self. It's a huge podcast. It's all about technology, having a, um, a healthy relationship to technology. And she wrote a book called Bored and Brilliant. Subtitle is uh, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Productive and Creative Self. And it's uh, all about um, our relationship um, with technology uh, and our sometimes unhealthy relationship with technology, which is a massive, massive issue. She's thought deeply about it, um, and as you will hear. You know, I think we come at it from slightly different perspectives, but uh, there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram, which we kind of suss out in the course of this uh, discussion. So if you want to really go for it, listen to this and then um, go ahead and, and check out her podcast, which you should be listening to anyway, and, and maybe listen to the flip side of the conversation when she interviews me. So big thanks to Manoush for doing this. This was actually suggested by somebody uh, on Twitter who happens to listen to both of our podcasts and thought it may be a case of like... Two great tastes that taste great together, um, if you remember that commercial. Anyway, I'm going to shut up. Here's Manoush. You and I have crossed paths, I think. We have? Yeah, I think so. Really? Because I worked for the BBC, uh, Foreign News. Oh. At the time, um, my roommate, when I lived in D.C., was um, a news producer, Charlie Herman. Um, oh, Charlie Herman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie Herman worked here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. Um, but we, so this is back in the day, in the 90s. I lived in D.C., and I was in the BBC's Washington Bureau, and he was at ABC, whatever that was, and... So I knew him. And then, of course, when horrible disasters would happen, I would inevitably end up hanging out with ABC people or sleeping on their couch in some random house. I'm thinking of Nova Scotia, the Swiss air crash. I ended up sleeping, I think, on ABC's couch. I don't know. Um, so I, when I read your book, the first one, um, 10% Happier, I, I re- it really resonated with me because I knew exactly like those moments that you described as you were – you know, and really having an adrenaline rush when you were on the road and the highs and the very big lows that come with um, foreign news gathering really like that really struck me. Yeah. Um, and I also have had a history of anxiety. So um, so I was with you all the way <laughs> through that book, all the way. I, I want I want to say good, but I'm like good, good question mark. Well, I mean, you know, they, I don't want to I don't want to put a positive sheen on anxiety, for example. No, but if it's brought the two of us to be yeah. sitting together on podcasts where I think we're helping people, yeah. you know, understand their brains and yeah. technology and all the other things affecting them, then I say good, Dan. I'm going with good. Excellent. I'm going <laughs> to add an exclamation point. Um, so let me ask you. Uh, the question I always ask everybody, which is, how did you get into meditation? Well, I don't know that I'm necessarily into meditation. Okay. I don't know what to call it. What do you, yeah, what do you call so, it? So I was thinking about it on the subway ride here. I, um, I did your one-minute meditation as a sort of preparation to come here. And I think that for those of us who are slightly more resistant or who have struggled with it, um, obviously – the second book of yours is the first thing that we should turn to. But um, I think that explaining it in a different way has helped me 
not be at war with my mind. Mm. And that is sort of what I discovered with my my book and boredom, um, that that was an entry point for me to sort of settling down. Having said that, should I go into boredom is a very different thing that happens in your brain. So when you allow yourself to space out when you're folding the laundry or walking to work or whatever you're doing, um, you ignite a network in your brain called the default mode. And in the default mode, that's actually where you do your most original thinking. You do uh, creative problem solving. You also do something called autobiographical planning. This is where you look back at your life, you take note of the highs and lows, you build a personal narrative, and then you do what psychologists call perspective bias. You look into the future and you set new goals and figure out the steps to get there. So super important stuff that um, I sort of journeyed to find out about because I realized so many of us were looking at our phones instead of mm-hmm. doing this sort of important look, looking at our lives. Um and then, of course, the, the inevitable question came up because meditation is something that people talk about a lot these days. And I think because of our technology is yeah, one of the reasons. I agree. Yeah. So um, and so I wanted to understand how meditation was different than boredom. Now, of course, as you talk about on your show, there are so many different kinds of meditation. So the way I like to describe it to lay people is like in meditation, from what I understand, uh, it's a not thinking thing, right? Whereas with boredom, you're going into mind wandering and you're actually not saying don't let your mind wander. You're saying let's watch and see where it goes. That can be to some very dark places, mm-hmm. but it can also be very positive, what psychologists call positive constructive mind wandering, which is where you do what I was talking about, the the good stuff, you know, the creativity, the the um the the bigger problem solving, which you just cannot do if you are retweeting and posting and liking, etc. So I have a bunch of things to say about the about, yeah. about all the questions you asked do about uh, the. Well, I'm not going to do it actually. The the this I'm working my way up to saying I'm not going to do it uh, yet. <laughs> uh, which is you know all the questions about the overlap between boredom and meditation and the default mode. I have a bunch of things to say, but I want to pull the story out of you a little yeah, bit yeah. about. Because you got interested in boredom for some really good and interesting reasons. Yes. Can you just tell me the backstory that, to that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a personal moment of failure, <laughs> as you describe your own personal moment. So for me, it was um, – I'm such a type A person. I was like – the podcast, this was like in 2014. It was doing well. Tell, tell, tell everybody yeah. what Note oh, to Self is. Oh, by the way, hello. Yeah. Um, so I host a podcast called Note to Self. Uh, its origins are in New York Public Radio. It comes from WNYC Studios. And we sort of started out as a small on-air segment about uh, New York's burgeoning tech economy. But really what I quickly learned, and this was in 2014, was that People didn't need another place to get tech news. What they needed was a place to be guided through this transformation of every social structure in our lives from how we find love to how we parent to how we meet people, how we work, where we work. Technology is upending every single sort of thing that we've taken for granted, including how our brains work. Um And so for me, the show has really become, we used to call it the tech show about being human, but I think that it's beyond that. I think it's about finding a a way to understand this accelerating world and reminding yourself what truly is important because Lord knows everyone and every platform and every app will try to distract you. 
Um, and so recentering and making sure that we use our devices as tools rather than taskmasters. So, I mean, that's such an important subject, such an important subject. The So you were doing this and it was doing well, and yet you were probably pretty much sucked into your – it sounds like from, from what I've read in your book that you were nonetheless completely sucked into your devices. Oh, completely yeah. and utterly, yes. So – but I didn't kind of I thought, well, I'm a tech reporter. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, right. Uh, like, you know, you got to do the drugs that you're dealing, I guess. <laughs> In any case, um, I sat down to sort of think of big ideas for the show. And I had this moment of um, panic. Like there was like nothing upstairs. Like I, I've generally been a very good problem solver. And there was a sense that there was like sand in my brain. And I thought back, you know, like when had I had my best ideas in the past? And it was it was such a cliche. It was like staring out the window while I was on a long car ride or waiting in line to get my latte. And and now I realize that every little crack in my life, you know, those little moments of waiting for the subway to come or waiting to pick up my kids was always filled with information or my phone or swiping or letting someone know where I was or checking something. And it made me realize like that I had not been bored potentially in years, Mm. actually. And so I really wanted to know. I was like, well, what actually happens in our brain when we get bored? Or I guess more importantly, what could be happening to us if we never get bored? Like what would happen if we got rid of this human state Entirely, because that's what it seems like we're doing. But there was more to it. I mean, you actually had a lot going on at the time. You would had a new baby. Uh, and you... Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's like I see the sort of how my – well, my, my son and the iPhone were actually born the same month <laughs> in 2007. But I did not get a um, a smartphone till 2009. It's hard to imagine that. But back in the day, yeah. people were like, oh, what is this iPhone thing? Let the early adopters, you know – I was like that. Were you? Yeah. yeah it took me a little while. Did it? When yeah. did you first get a smartphone? Probably around 2009. Around 2009, yeah. Yeah. right? Well, I had a BlackBerry. Yeah, of course. That doesn't really count. Though. No, because no. no, it doesn't count. I mean, there were Crackberries, of course, but it was different. I, and I will say, do you have kids? I have one kid. How old's your kid? He's going to be three soon. Okay. So you know how hard it can be those first years. like. Oh, yeah. It's tough. Yeah, it's really tough. And I had a really colicky baby, like a miserable baby who would not, who would only sleep when I was pushing the stroller, like only. So I was walking 15 miles a day. Yeah, it was crazy. It was, it was awful. And, you know, you couldn't stop because then he'd wake up and like, you know, just bad cycle. And I didn't have a phone, like a smartphone. I had my flip phone, but. So I just like walked and thought and walked and thought. And at first it was really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. And then like it took me a couple weeks um, to get to a place where I realize now that the reason I'm sitting here talking to you is because what I was planning at that time, I really was taking stock of like, what the hell are we doing on this planet? What's going to make me feel like I've done the best I can for this little baby who won't sleep, you know, really thinking, taking the bigger picture and not um, not sort of letting everyone know about my every little move or being reactive to things. It was very, very solitary. 
And that led you to the big idea for the show, or, or, or eventually it took okay. a while, but yeah. So where, where the the stuff with your son? What was the chronological relationship? So, but, let's see. So two thousand seven, yeah. iPhone born, colicky baby. Then speed ahead. Well, there's another baby in there. <laughs> God bless her. Um, and then twenty fourteen, like I'm I'm at this point where all the walking has turned into this podcast. I have my own show. That's pretty cool. I have two kids. I have my own show. It's all happening. And then I have this crisis of creativity. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so what did you, what did you, you, and the, the aha part of the crisis was, oh, boredom. There's something to that. Maybe. I wasn't sure. I didn't really know. I, there wasn't a ton of research out there about boredom. And it turns out we're at the, this is just a few years ago that we are really researchers had just started to understand what happens in the brain. And we are at actually a very crucial moment in neuroscience, well, with many things, but with particularly understanding the science of mind wandering. Um, And so that made sense to me as I started interviewing people. You know, one person told me, we have found that the more fatigued you are, uh, the more likely you are to check Facebook. Mm. And I was like, well, that makes total sense. I see it in my own behavior, you know, that you're you're just looking for an easy dopamine. Totally. Jones. And at the end of the day, you know, that moment when you're swiping and swiping and you're not even reading what is going by. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. You're exhausted. Your brain is tired. Um, And it's it is crackalicious. Yeah. So. The more I learned about it, and, and you know, that's the beauty of podcasting, right, is I said to my audience, I was like, are you guys feeling a little weird, like not sure what's going on with your brain? Would you be interested in taking a week? Like what if we tried a week of little small behavior changes and we saw if we changed the way we used our phones, if we introduced a little bit more boredom into moments in our lives, if that jump starts our creativity, if we find that it actually is effective. And so in 2015, we did this one week. Um, and I, you know, I had assumed that like, I don't know, a couple hundred people would sign up to do this weirdo experiment with me. But 20,000 people wow. signed up. Yeah. Wow. Like in two days, I was like, oh, this is a thing. Yeah. People are feeling this. Yeah. And I am so not a special snowflake. Everyone is going through this. So we did this experiment um, where every morning you woke up and you got a mini podcast that explained some of the design of the technology, the neuroscience, um, and you got a corresponding newsletter which laid out your sort of challenge for the day, a behavior tweak to try. And then we – I mean – Irony of all ironies, but you have an app. You understand. We also partnered with apps that measured your actual time on your phone and also how many pickups. Because I'm not on my phone a lot, but I'm a checker. Yeah. Like a lot yeah. of checking. Yeah. And, you know, we found that it worked. It was quite extraordinary. Like we had classrooms do it across the country. We had offices do it. Um, lots of therapists <laughs> did it with their clients. Um, and we heard of people, you know, finishing big projects like their thesis. Finally, kids who told me that they didn't think they were smart, but now they realize that like school isn't as hard as they thought it was. Um, other people who came up with problems, you know, ways to solve problems at work. Um, and, and also I think Dan more, more than just like, you know, the productivity side, it was a sense of, um, I like my life better like this. Mm. Like there was a guy, Liam. One of the things we asked people to do was to take the app that was driving you crazy off your phone. The one that like gave you like twitchy thumb, you know, 
And this guy was like, I'm taking off all the social media off my phone. None of it. And and he got back a week later. He's like, I just feel calmer. I feel more relaxed. My life is more contemplative. It's quieter. And I am good with that. So fast forward to sitting here and the book version is out. I, I went and did a lot more research and, and a lot more interviews and put together the book. And I reached out to some of the original uh, people who had done the project. And Liam got back in touch. And he said, I never put the apps back on my wow, phone. Interesting. Like Good that, this is this is my new life. And I, I don't, and now when he wants to go on Facebook, it's not like he quit. He just, he sits down on his laptop. He does it for 20 minutes. And then he logs out and he's done. And it feels good. What about you? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. I struggle with this. I mean, I wrote a freaking book about it, and I still struggle with it. Um, and I think, you know, as someone who understands a lot of the ways that these things have been built and how our brains operate, the fact that I still have trouble really says, I think, what uh, – uh, I don't want to use the word crisis because I don't like to be alarmist. I like to be very positive. But what a <laughs> what a juncture we are at. And I think to me, you know, earlier a few weeks ago, we had te- uh, Facebook, Google, Twitter sitting on Capitol Hill testifying to the Senate Intelligence Committee. We are at this moment um, where two years ago this seemed like a weird kind of fringy experiment, but it's really become mainstream that people are starting to question their relationship that they have with their technology. They're also starting to question the people and understanding that there are humans behind these algorithms and that we have to start holding them accountable, holding them to ethical standards, making sure that the tech is used for good and not just for the bottom line. So many things to ask you about there. So let's just start, though, with what did you learn about good tech hygiene? What are the what's the what are the best practices? Well, what shocked me was that people assume you get your phone like this. It's preloaded with these apps. That's what you do. And that uh, no notifications. I could not believe how many people just leave their notifications on when they download an app. They just say automatically. Well, first of all, they sign the terms of service without um, look, don't bother reading the terms of service. Just assume that they're taking your privacy. We can talk about that another day. But um, they also leave all the notifications on. So this idea that you are being pinged all day long and you kind of think that that's what being a modern person is, which is just ridiculous. Um, so we ask people, for example, to – and they sound – kind of silly, but we asked people to keep their phone in their pocket while they were in transit um, or in their bag. And the idea being that you, so for one woman, she's a stay-at-home mom. She's like, well, I'm not really in transit. The most I'm doing is like walking from the couch where I'm nursing to the kitchen. And we were like, that counts. Try not to take your phone with you. And she was like, ha ha, that won't be hard. It was really hard. She had a really hard time not constantly checking. And and that's why we asked people to download these apps that measured because I don't – what we realized was that you, it has become a, a reflex, right, that we we don't even know that we are looking. So for me, I'll give myself as an example. I figured I was checking my phone like 30 times a day, but the app told me I was checking between 90 and 100 times wow. a day. And do you think that information – 
I mean, they say in AA, the first step is admitting it. Do you think that loading these apps and getting the information is the necessary first step toward developing a healthier relationship with your tech? Well, the way I looked at it is like, that's what, if you were doing a scientific study, you would want to establish your baseline, right? And to me, we are now living in like one big lab. We are constantly experimenting on ourselves in our lives. And if we don't have a baseline, if we don't know where we start, how are we ever going to figure out whether we're happy with where we are now? So... I found it very helpful. I think for me, it was it, it was the trigger that made me start to notice that, oh, every time I walk into an elevator, I look at my phone. And guess what? Every time I walk out of an elevator, I look at my phone again. What the hell am I looking for? Like, I'm not even looking for anything. It had just become, you know, smokers. A lot of smokers were like, oh, I felt like that. It used to be like I'd get to work. I'd stand outside. You know, this idea of linking behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Before you know it, there you are with a habit, right? And maybe that means that if you're on your phone in the elevator, you don't have any eye contact with your colleagues or you miss uh, uh, a moment where you remember that it's, I don't know, your mom's birthday. Or maybe you just notice that your stomach is full and you don't need the donut that's going to be whatever, you know, these moments of checking in with our bodies ourselves, the people around us, um, I think a lot of people are missing out and they're starting to notice the absence of that. And and so just back to the, did you come to a view about the what, what is the best route toward having a healthier relationship? The view that I come to annoyed some people. Um, I think what I learned that first week was that Whenever someone said, well, I don't know, am I doing it right? Did I do the challenge right? Did, did I do what you wanted me to do? And I would say, well, only you know <laughs> like whether it was the right amount. See why that's annoying, but it's unavoidable. It is unavoidable. And so in the book, I'm much more specific because I realize that that's what people want. They want specific instructions. They want to know when they get a gold star, right? Like when they've done it right. But the message remains the same. What is right for my 73-year-old mom is not going to feel right for a 16-year-old. My mom takes two photos a year. A 16-year-old, I mean, on the average, who knows? The average American spends 11 hours in front of a screen. That's average, though, right? So we have to, whatever demographic you are, whatever age group, gender, everyone has their own right amount. And I think that that amount is as personal as uh, what your home, your home screen looks, your home screen, Dan Harris's home screen is just right for Dan Harris. Mine is just right for me. And tech has personalized the experience to the point where I think we have to personalize our own uh, ways of using it. And there's not a one size fits all. What do you end up recommending in the book? So what we do is we go through the different ideas that we tried out in the book. So for another one, so that was a, uh, the physical connection, this idea of getting it off your body. Um, I was feeling like I, I couldn't distinguish the difference between my phone vibrating and my stomach growling. Like there starts to be this real physical attachment that we have. It's kind of insane. Yeah. It's, it's like a version of the singularity. Yes. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so another one we did was we looked specifically at this idea of um, how photography has changed the way we use our memory. Um, so we asked you to try one day of not taking any photos. And there's very interesting research that, you know, some of us look, it makes sense if you are parking in some crazy parking garage and you're like, wait, I'm never going to remember where I'm parked. You take a photo, right? I never think to do that. 
A lot of people do, actually. That's a good idea. I know, it's a good idea. But, okay, let's say that you're parking in the garage of uh, a wonderful museum, and then you go in, and you're like, this is amazing. I'm going to take a picture of that and that, and, oh, my God, look at that. Let me take a picture. (laughs) That's what we do, right? Well, there's research that goes to show that when you do that, you are outsourcing you are outsourcing your memory to your phone, that actually your recollection, your um, it's not just about being in the moment. It's that you don't actually remember ever having been in the moment. So there's the right time to take a photo and there's the maybe maybe don't take a photo time. And so if we can just, you know, that little it's this little I don't even know. It's like a less than a second. It's this little smidge of a moment where you decide to get your phone out or don't get your phone out, to tap it or not tap it, to respond or not respond, to react and be angry or favorite. Like maybe just ask yourself, do, do I need this? Is this going to help me? Am I having a good experience that doesn't need to be captured? And if you do, then Okay, so stop. And I'm not saying like, bad, put your phone away. No, no. Because if you decide, no, this is a beautiful moment and I do want to take a picture and I I want to look at this later or send it to someone and share it with them because I want to tell them about what I experienced, then by all means, go ahead. This is not a detox at all. This is about finding better ways to use the technology it's not a binary it's not on or off and i think some people think oh i'm dying for that week in the woods with the phone away and no you have to live with this stuff and it does improve our lives but we need to be smarter about it i agree wholeheartedly so what about you talked about um having some wisdom around when to take pictures and when when not what about the, the the reach the sort of, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I'm grabbing my phone because I need something. How do you, how, what, what's your advice about managing that? Well, so we're kind of strict about that. One of the other things was um, usually people are reaching for the same thing over and over again, we found. So for me, again, I'm always willing to use myself as a guinea pig. I have a game called Two Dots. Do you know this game, Dan? Well, I heard you mention in yeah. the book. but Okay, so I, that was my thing. That was my scotch and soda at the end of the day, you know? <laughs> going to get me some two dots. That's I, what I'm going to uh, do. Hard for me to – I mean, one could argue better than scotch and soda. Well, yeah, when you're lying to your husband about like, are you playing the two – no, no, no. I was just checking actually what the weather is. I think yeah. the kids need to pack their boots. Yeah, that's bad. It's bad. That's an addiction. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So we tried for, you know, take it off your phone. Now, I I will admit it's back on my phone. Do you want to hear how that happened? (laughs) Yeah, I do. And I also want to know, are you playing it like with the same sort of not with the same fervor? I was given a talking to uh, by game designer Jane McGonigal. She's awesome. You should have her on your show. I've heard of her. Her sister's also pretty cool. Oh, yeah? I don't know her sister. She's also – both of them have public speaking careers and write books and stuff like that. Okay. So I know Jane. Institute of the Future. I'm I'm temporarily – Blanking on her sister's name, but we were on a TV show together. Oh, you Canadian were? Canadian TV show together once a couple of years ago. Is she ago. a twin? No, I don't no, think so. No, she has twins. Jane has twins. So she says, she doesn't believe in addiction. She's like, no, it's just that your brain has latched onto something that makes it feel good. But if you use it in the right circumstances, so for example, there's, uh, you know, they're in some hospitals now, they're giving kids 
video games to play before surgery or after surgery um, as a coping mechanism, right, as ways to uh, divert your attention to something that is not productive. Pain is not productive, right? So her whole thing was I was telling her that I had a really long flight. I had to go on to Australia and I was really, really anxious about it. She's like, so put your freaking game back on your phone because what are you going to do? Drink your way to Australia? Play your game because your fear is irrational. So you don't need it. Play your game. I'm not anti-game when I said mm-hmm. I thought it was an addiction before. I don't think – I mean, what do I know whether it's an addiction, just to be clear? But I'm definitely not anti-game. Um, yeah. I'm just anti-unhealthy use of anything. Precisely. I mean, it's, for some people, that could be something else. Drinking. Exactly. and soda. Yeah. And I think the difference is, though – there's something called alcoholism and we talk in society, you know, there's there's laws around it, right? You can't buy it until you're 21 and you will get cut off by the stewardess and there's a discussion around what is a healthy use of alcohol or, you know, if you enjoy a glass of wine at dinner, that's fine, not more than so many. But what we're doing is we are giving very powerful tools to brains that are not fully formed. You know, 13-year-olds can't have a moment of like, hmm, is this app serving me right now? <laughs> or is it acting as a, you know, neurological tool, you know? So for me, it's about explaining some of the design elements. Snapchat, for example, one of the people in my book is Tristan Harris. He's a technologist turned ethicist. Um, and he sort of talked me through how Snapchat has something called streaks. You know what a streak is? Is that like a usage metric? Yes, exactly. Well, what it is, is let's say you and I are 16. I know it's a stretch, but um, and I say, Dan, let's 30 years. So let's start a streak. So tomorrow I send you a selfie and you send me a selfie and we try to keep the streak up for as many consecutive days as possible. Uh, It means that our friendship is strong. It means we also get points. We get uh, emoji trophies. And now it's turned into a thing in high schools and younger kids where um, if you break the streak, it means that your friendship is over. It is like a serious issue. Wow. And so if you explain to a kid like, well, okay, so Snapchat went public in 2017. And um, one of the metrics that they are valued by is how many check-ins a day a user has. So it behooves them to build ways of getting you to come back consistently multiple times a day every day that is the metric by which their company is valued that is their stock price it's your habit so i think it's kind of like saying like so just so you know this is how the sausage is made just so you know what's in your hot dog if you still want to eat it enjoy if you're a little grossed out or you're like actually i'm only gonna have a hot dog like when i go to a ball game that's cool too. That's does it the work when you explain that to people, you think? Oh, yeah. It no, does. Do. Oh, kids, yeah. kids. Oh, yeah. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but The data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. I mean, I, I now have a lot of teachers who are using Born and Brilliant as their curriculum. And, um, you know, there's media literacy classes, and I think they're starting to build it into digital literacy classes. That Knowing that the tech classes, it's not just about learning to code. It is learning uh, an interdisciplinary look at how technology is being used to form society, change habits, uh, upending the economy, um, the health repercussions, the um, psychological repercussions. We see higher, um, I'm sure you know this, we see higher rates of depression and anxiety, particularly in young women and girls. Um, many people say that it's related, to, researchers relate that to social media use and representation of girls and women online. Um, we have to have a holistic conversation about it. I, I don't want it to go away. I love my phone. It's in my bag right now, but... Um, but I, I think it's it's more powerful than we were led to believe. You talked about earlier, there was a moment when I said I have a million questions because you you, you like said a paragraph's worth of things that I wanted to follow up on and was Sorry unable to that. do through all, all at once. Um, but one of the things you said was about sort of understanding design and then and then instituting ethical standards. Yes. But say more about that. Is that even possible? Well, there is a very small but vocal uh, movement going on in Silicon Valley um, to sort of, for example, in basic computer science courses, if you are a computer science major, at very, very, very few institutions is there a requirement for an ethical or moral conversation about how you build what it, whatever it is you decide to build or a discussion about the attention economy, the fact that the way that uh, the tech companies make money is based on the amount of attention and time they have with our eyeballs. Um, and so we I think there's a movement to start that conversation in the valley itself. I am not of the valley. I, I think I people relate to me because I'm kind of the every woman. Right. And so to me, um, going around on my book tour, stopping at all these cities and talking to people about their everyday experience where they feel overloaded or overwhelmed or unmoored and relating that back to uh, the sort of systems that have been set up around it is very important to tell them to validate what they're feeling. If they feel uh, overwhelmed, for example, just now on the way to come see you, I got an email from a Marine stationed in Okinawa saying that he was experiencing a lot of the things that I talked about in his family but that he was very concerned about some of the the younger Marines um, or people on his squadron, whatever they're called, um, their ability to concentrate. Very important in their job, right? Precision. It's really important. We know that North Korea is testing missiles, right? Mm -hmm. Not so far away. So he was saying, you know, can we do this on the base? Can we start to have this conversation? And it's not like, you know, 
Marines, put away your phones. That is not the conversation. The conversation is where does the technology fit into the important work that we are doing? And does it fit the right way so that it always improves us? It doesn't dampen our capacity. But do you think that we can, if if we find that people are devising diabolically addictive uh, products, is there anything we can do to hold them accountable? Well, so I think the conversation is starting around that. I think the fact that there are senators who are finally questioning um, the fake news argument. I think we have uh, the entire conversation around the 2016 presidential election has made people who sort of thought, oh, technology, I don't really understand it, namely people on Capitol Hill. They are starting to ask questions. They are asking uh, not just questions about um how fake news could possibly get out there, but what kind of systems can be built in to make sure that what we're seeing online is productive, is true, in fact. Not only that, but what about some of the monopolies that they're starting to be? They're starting to look up and say, oh, wait, there are five companies that are basically controlling, um, you know, if you go to Am- if you're an Amazon shopper, you go to Whole Foods, they own you there. You own all they they know your habits. Uh, they I don't know if you have an echo in your house. This idea that they are starting to take over not just one part of your life, but every single facet of your life. The privacy questions that there are. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments right now about whether um, your cell phone can be used to track your movements or not by the police. It is starting to be a conversation at every single um level of society. And I think it started in a very, very small place, which was like moms and dads and parents and and people swiping Tinder and, and questioning, like, why do I feel unhappy right now? But actually, this, this scales to the Supreme Court. It's Capitol mm-hmm. Hill. It is Silicon Valley. It is the way that our economy is set up. So let me get back to you for a second. So you, mm. you said even... It seems to me that even after, at least what I've gleaned from you thus far, is even after doing all of this work, writing this great book and hosting this podcast, that you still are struggling to have a healthy relationship with your tech. Yeah, for sure. And I think part of that... What does that that, say about how how doable this is? Well, it says less about me and more about the expectations that we've created in society. I don't think that this can be simply a personal... You know, it's not just self-help. This is about creating a culture, um, a com- communities, societies where time is valued more than responsiveness. I mean, what I think is that we've started to confuse productivity with responsiveness. We think because, you know, I can let my team know, like, I'm on my way back from seeing Dan Harris up at ABC. Like, no, OK, they don't need to know that. You're not, you know, I'm keeping my team up to date. We are, we're constantly talking. We're constantly checking in with people. We're updating what's on your mind. Twitter wants to know. Facebook's like, what are you doing? My team is on Slack saying, hey, are you close? You know, this constant updating, 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 as opposed to um, saying, how do I want to use my time right now? And and prioritizing. I think what it comes down to is self-regulation, asking yourself, you know, when, how to use your devices, but also culturally setting expectations. So one of the other things we asked people to do was to take a vacation to we all set out of office. You know, you, you go away for the holidays. You set an out of office email response. What if you set that up for one hour every day and just said, hey. Like I'm not available from 10 to 11, but I'll get back to you. But the key is to say, I will get back to you at 11 when I log back on to reset the expectation. 
So you you honed in as a corrective to all this on boredom. Mm. Um, can you rhapsodize a little bit about the 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 upside of boredom? Well, there's a. It's funny, Dan, because people were really weird when I wanted to use the word boredom. They were like, "Oh God, do you really? Couldn't you use something a little more positive, like daydreaming or spacing out?" And I was like, "No." It needs to be boredom because boredom is painful. And it was interesting. Like there'd be some people who are like, oh, I totally know what you're talking about. It's when I mow the lawn on Sundays and I can't do anything else. It's so loud and it's so boring. But then about 10 minutes in, I start to like think about something. Mm -hmm. And then I had a teenager who said to me, I really don't like this. It feels super weird. I've never experienced this, this feeling before. And I was like, yes, yeah, so that's boredom. And that was my whole childhood. Yeah, right. Exactly. But I think you and I are these this weird last sort of decade of people who, you know, remember talking on the phone for three hours mm-hmm. and then hanging it back on the wall. <laughs> or so, somebody I saw a great tw- tweet, ironically, today from my friend Michael Crowley, who's a political writer. And he's he, he was replying to somebody who asked put out into the Twitter sphere, what what kind of story do you have that proves you're old? And he said, <laughs> making a phone call to find out what time it is. Remember oh, that? Yes, Calling time. That's yeah, a good one. I hadn't remembered that. Oh, I forgot That was a about... thing. I used to do that a lot. Yeah. Oh, I totally remember that, actually. Mm-hmm. I saw a good tweet that said, Twitter has this weird ability to make the small things seem important and the important things seem very trivial. <laughs> yes. I was yes. like, wow, yeah, yes. that is true. <laughs> that is so true. So, so you, I you want to solve this, don't you, Dan? You're like, well, how are we going to fix it? What no, can no, no, we do? no, 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 I, I know it's not. I, I actually think you said the right thing right at the beginning, which is this is it's it, this is not science; it's art, and it's about like just figuring out what titrating it for yourself. Everybody's going to have to yeah. figure these things out for themselves. I know that's kind of you said it's annoying. It's it is annoying, but it's probably just true. We you know. The th- the suggestions and tweaks you're giving us mm. uh, are all useful, and we should try them. But yeah. ultimately, the decision is going to be ours. The lab yeah. is our is in our own mind. Now, I asked you at the beginning. Unless, though, yeah, sorry, I would ahead. like to point out, unless mm-hmm. there is a consumer backlash, which could be coming, I think. You know, it's interesting. I uh, I don't know how much I can say about this, but I spent some time talking to some tech executives recently at a mm. major company, uh-huh. and I got the sense that. There's concern about this. Mm. So I was talking to my 13-year-old neighbor the other day. She got her phone, you know, to write a passage. I was like, oh, what are you going to do? Like, be on Instagram? Like, trying to be cool. And she just looked at me and she was like, only losers are on their phones all weekend. And I was like, oh. Wow. Well, that is interesting. If there can, I mean, we've changed how we feel about wearing seatbelts you know, hard to believe 15 years ago that you couldn't smoke in a bar in New York City. Mm-hmm. That would have been an outrage. And like two years later, nobody wanted to stink when they came home yeah. at the end of the no, year. It was a big deal when, when Bloomberg was people were pissed at him. When yeah. He did that. Yeah. So I don't know. And I think time has compressed. Right. The way a 19 year old uses their technology is very different than the way a 13 year old. Interesting. So my you know, I'm curious. Watch that space. Look to see where it is so not cool to be posting on the weekends. Wow. 
That's Maybe. really, really, really interesting. I, what I was getting at, what I was trying to get at before is, is is when I asked you whether you meditate or you're into meditation, you said you don't know that you are. Mm. What, say more about that. Well, so I, I think meditation has always been very aspirational to mm-hmm. me. I love this. This is the subject of the <laughs> book that I've just written, which is like trying to figure out why – because I think it's aspirational for a lot of people. Yes. It's gone from being ridiculous to being aspirational. Yeah. A- a- but people have the aspiration and yet aren't doing it. And my question is why? Did you notice I started fidgeting when I said that, by the way? I started, like, moving around in my chair. I got to this point where I think I had tried so many times that I decided I was going to save it for my 50s. I don't know why I decided that. I was like, when I'm in my 50s, I will learn to meditate. Mm. I can't do it while I have kids. I can't do it while I'm, you know, hopefully at the peak of my career, you know, trying to cram it all in every day. I think the peak is yet to come. I hope you're right. I think, you know, I, I, again, uh, have seen what happens to most women who are of a certain age in new. Where do they go, Dan? Where do the older women in the newsroom go? You know, the business isn't super kind to older men either, just for the record. Uh, But it's, it is especially cruel to older women. I agree. And, And it's not just this business. It's every business. Yeah. That's the truth. And we're at a really, I think, potentially very healthy moment in our society where we're starting to look not just at sexual harassment and assault, but sexism. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing that my wife and I talk about all the time. What's She's her a doctor. Take? Yeah. And it's just the, the, in, in medicine in particular, uh, and I, my mother's a doctor as well, the system was set up by men for men. And it doesn't allow many women, especially women who want to have kids, to thrive. And that drives a lot of incredibly talented people out of the workplace. How did you guys manage it when you had your kid? We're still we're figuring it out now. She's taking a break right now. She's taking a break. After unbelievable amounts of study and work. And she's ultra, ultra specialized. Anyway, I've taken us on a way, Wait, way, the, way what deep What is her specialty, diversion. may I ask? She has double specialty in pulmonary medicine and emergent uh, ICU uh, intensive oh, care. Oh, she must know. My a very dear friend of mine at the UC San Diego is also an ER pulmon, pulmon, pulmonary specialist. So, surgery. So not ER, it's uh, intensive care. So that's like the ICU. Okay, which is, yeah. You get to the ER and you're really, really not in a good situation. They send you into intensive care. But Same so, thing. Yeah, 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 so it's, but it's super specialized. Yes. Yeah. Um, but a long way of saying I don't, I, 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 I Yes, the media is tough on it's it's hard it's a hard place to be um, to have longevity, no question about it. But I just, I think podcasting may be different. It feels different yeah. than when I was doing TV. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. I mean, I don't know. That's a lame reason to be in podcasting, isn't it? Because no one can see how old I am. But I don't think that's why <laughs> you're in podcasting. I think it's a ancillary benefit, not Maybe. the reason to get into it. Maybe. But anyway, I don't think you need to wait to your 50s to meditate. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's get back to that. Oh, my God. So all over the place. Tech brain. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so I think what like what was the most ludicrous was when I started seeing that like I'd written like learn to meditate on my to-do list, which is absurd. No. Isn't it? No. You think it's okay to schedule it? Yeah. Should I just do that? Yeah. Why not? So I've spent a lot of time yeah. in... in um, I spent – so I, the, the brief backstory is that I, it was very easy for me to adopt the habit, not because I'm super disciplined, but because um, 
I have a long and pronounced history of depression, anxiety, panic, and substance abuse. And it was pretty obvious to me, A, from the research, and then B, from my own personal experience, that this is something that would be useful mm. in keeping this stuff at bay or mitigating it. And so I, it was pretty, no, it was kind of a no brainer to use a, probably a weird term in so context oddly, to keep it doing, to keep it going. And I had to try, when I wrote 10% happier, I thought, Oh, everybody will keep, everybody who reads this will start to meditate. My own wife who basically edited the book didn't meditate until recently. And so I, I had to do a reckoning with like, why is it that people aren't doing this thing that everybody now knows is good for them? And it doesn't involve a lot of the things that people feared, like, you know, you don't have to join a cult or anything like that. Um, so I like that, though, that it's prescriptive in a way. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've read your book and I don't know why I didn't think of it that way as like, oh, I go to the gym, you know, because I don't. Because I want to stay strong. Because I, because I, otherwise my back hurts. I need to meditate because otherwise I'm kind of a like panicky nightmare. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All I know is I am often looking for quiet. I desperately seek nature, and I want to have it in my kid's life as well. And I think the closest I get to it is I, I actually I did it in the name of boredom, but perhaps I am doing it in the name of. Meditation is I go running without listening to anything. That's a big one. That's that's hard to do. It's really yes. hard. So I, I want to I want to get into the issue of boredom versus mindfulness. So mm. I'm not anti boredom at all uh, in in the way that you discuss it. But it's interesting to me. I'm trying to organize my thoughts here. That you you talk you talked about the default mode network. And mm. You talked about it in a kind of positive way that when we're not sort of Doing some, we're not totally distracted by tech. We're not engaged in the in the motion of swiping and searching and replying. That then we can revert to what's called the default mode. And and you talked about it again in, in a positive way. But in meditation circles, mm-hmm. the default mode is often talked about in a very negative way, which is that when we are not paying attention to our actual lives, when we're not engaged in a pro in in something that we have to focus on, like an enlivening conversation with another human being, uh, uh, creative work, uh, tasting our food, then we tend to revert to the, this default mode, which is mostly me, 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 often very negative um, and uh, and ruminative, ruminative and repetitive. And um, yes, all these good things can come out of it. We need the default mode. Otherwise, we wouldn't have skyscrapers and irrigation systems and piano sonatas. But but that is kind of the the beautiful tip of the iceberg. That but the but, but everything below the water is often kind of pretty nasty and and repetitive. That's generally the logic you hear coming out of this group of neuroscientists known as contemplative neuroscientists mm. who study what meditation does, and they sh- show that meditation can knock you out of the default mode and into not what happens when you're on tech, but instead what happens when you are really into a beautiful piece of music or mm. or you're really focused on what's happening right now. Mm. So to me, there's an interesting tension between the boredom that you are extolling and mindfulness, which is kind of a um, – and I, I think there's room for both. I yes. think I'm not anti-daydreaming, mind-wandering, constructive boredom. I think we need those things. You can't be mindful all the time. We didn't evolve for that. Right. But it is a really useful skill to have and to build. I think you're totally right about that. I feel like 
it's like mindfulness and mind wandering, which is what I'm talking about, are like kind of salt and pepper, right? Like yes. they, things taste best when you are able to have a little bit of both. Yeah. You don't want too That's much well of said. either of them. Yeah. I, I find that what I like to think of when, when I think of boredom that then goes into I want to frame it in a positive way because I think boredom has gotten a bad rap, right? We think like, oh, no, I'm bored. Quick, get rid of it. But actually, if we frame it in a positive way, if we explain that, yes, the default mode does absolutely all the experts that I spoke to were like, you know, there's the dysphoric element, as you said, the, oh, shoot, I wish I had said, told Dan about this amazing moment I had and I'll, you know, kill myself or that oh, my book got this one bad review and mm-hmm. I can't, I can't mm-hmm. shake it. Okay. But if I, well, I find that once you name it, that's an incredibly powerful thing. Oh, I'm in the default mode and I'm in a ruminating stage. Let's not do that. Let's see if I can use this time that I have to allow my mind to wander to a good place. And when I think of mind wandering, it's like with mindfulness, you talk about it. With mindfulness, I think people talk about in the moment, right? With mind wandering, I think of it as time travel, like that you are you're remembering things and you're allowing yourself to go back in time to relive moments, to think through things. And then you're going into the future and you are visualizing what it could look like and parsing out the tiny details to figure out how to make it. So can you actually do those things? That's where I think mindfulness comes in. I think that you the salt and pepper thing is really nice. We in the mindfulness community tend to run down boredom from a different side. Mm. You, you're you're you were the when you're talking about boredom in the pejorative, you're you're talking about people who are so addicted to their technology they can't they can't abide the thought of of not having stimulation stimulation like that study there was a study a couple of years ago that took, put people in a room uh, with yes. no nothing to do, ex, ex, the only thing in the room was a machine that would give you an electric shock. Doctor Wilson, University of Virginia. That's yes. exactly right. And um, people ended up shocking themselves because they would rather have pain than nothing than no stimulation. So that's that's a denigration of boredom from one side. In the mindfulness community, we denigrate boredom as a lack of attention. Mm. That you are something is boring to you often. Your breath in mm. meditation is boring to you because you're actually not really committed to it. Mm. Um, and I, I agree with that um, put down of boredom from our side, the mindfulness mm. side. Um, but I also think there is absolutely something to be said for daydreaming and mind wandering. And often we in the mindfulness community are criticized for being kind of like the nanny state of the mind. Like mm. you always have to be paying attention. <laughs> and I, by the way, I borrowed that term from a friend of mine, like um, Barry Boyce. Um, the, the, and that critique is right. You can't, we, we can't expect you to be mindful all the time. And the injunction to do so is just super, super annoying. I think the, the salt and pepper thing is really nice that you, um, you should develop the skill to be mindful because so much of what we do when we're mind wandering is negative and self-referential and, and repetitive. But you can then do what you just described, which is the triple, Lindy, which is to mindfully mind wander, which is to notice. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. OK. My mind wandering right now is ridiculous and useless. Let me mind wander about something more constructive. Yes. I think that's exactly right. What I find interesting is that we're having this conversation at all, because when I do speak to some older people, they're kind of flummoxed. Um, The meditation thing, I think, you know, the time had 
when when did meditation sort of like really kick off in this country? Uh, two thousand, I think it it's. So I got into it in like two thousand nine, and as I often like to say, it was the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend. <laughs> Um, and that was it was total happenstance. I just kind of stumbled upon it for a, b- a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I would say it started to get it started to get cooler in the early mm. 2010s mm-hmm. when you started to see big celebrities doing it mm-hmm. and athletes and scientists, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And it's just been building steadily since then. So, at the risk of sounding uh, insane, I, I this think is good. you're in a safe place. Okay, thank Go you for, for that. Um, now it's normal, right? Yes. Meditation's kind of like, oh, I got to go to my yoga class. Some of them are less meditative than others, obviously. But, you know, it's yoga is normal. Meditation is something that we expect ourselves to do. We also order our groceries online and we do all of these things. And it's almost like I think we'll I'll call it mind wandering. We'll leave boredom out of it because it is controversial. But the mind wandering thing, I think, is about five years behind what you're saying. And. I'll give you an example. I did a TED Talk earlier this year. Boy, could I have used meditation. I should have. Actually, I did use some of it. Okay. Now that I'm thinking about it. In any case, though, they were like, so wait a minute. There was this moment where the producer was like, so your TED Talk is basically telling people that they need to think. I was like, yep. And she's like, and you're finding that people need to hear this? I was like, yes, that is is where we are right now. We are so hyper-saturated with information and stimuli, all kinds of stimuli, physical, mental, uh, psychological, that we are, we're on the fritz. So back to the salt and pepper, a little bit of meditation, a little bit of letting yourself think about the things that you are consuming. That, I think, is where we need to get to. That's a beautiful place to leave it. Um, let's let's go into what I have started calling the plug zone. Oh, okay, yeah. Let's just plug the hell out of everything <laughs> you got. Like, just give it to me. <laughs> okay. So, um, I mean, after this conversation, how dirty do I feel saying, you know, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Manoush Z. My website but is... But we're not saying don't use social media. No, we're, we're just not. saying That's use right. it with some wisdom. Use it with wisdom. Only contact me if you've thought about what you're going to mm. say beforehand. <laughs> so I'm at Manoush Z on Twitter. I, I do love talking to people. Um, you can email me or get in touch. I'm at ManoushZ.com. My book is called Bored and Brilliant. It's wherever good books are sold. Maybe... Oh, wouldn't that be cool if they were like... You bought Bored and Brilliant? Maybe you're interested in Dan Harris's book. I would like that. That would be great. That'd be really cool. Um, Salt and pepper books. Yeah. We should have a dinner party. Um, The podcast is called Note to Self. Uh, It's at noteToselfradio.org. Hugely popular. Yeah. Hugely popular. People love it. Yeah, it's good. Um, And meditation is a recurring theme that we talk about for sure. Chade Mang Tan, I'm sure you're. Yes. yes. He's a former guest on this podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he's been on. um, It's an important part of people's lives. I I really, I feel that like the things that you and I are talking about. We we need to talk about them more. We yes. need them to yeah. be part of what we teach our kids. In addition to you know healthy eating and all of those things, it's it's about being a better human, or just being human. Period. Right? Not 
just avoiding the singularity, at least for now. For now. Learning to tell the difference between your phone ringing and your tummy roiling. Yes. Um, thank you. Excellent job. Oh, Dan, really thank appreciate you. It. Thanks Great for having you. me. My oh, pleasure. wait. Yeah. One other thing we got to oh. plug. You're on my show. Oh, yeah, that's right. Come hang out at Note to Self because yes. Dan's going to be hanging out with right. me on my show. And yeah. God, I being interviewed by a journalist as a journalist. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass, right? Yeah, yeah. just you wait, buddy. <laughs> See you Thursday. <laughs> Looking you. forward to that. Me too. Revenge. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.